Hello, I'm Bob. This is Sound News broadcasting from the Old Mile Studio in Church Street, Portadown. Please note a magazine follows this recording. This production is for the week ending Saturday the 21st. On behalf of everyone here on the Craig Avon Talking Newspaper team, welcome to this week's programme. The stories making the headlines this week are, from the Portadown Times, Maisie Gifts to Children, and from the Lurgan Mail, Murder Appeal. And now it's over to Catherine who brings you our first story. This is the headline from the Lurgan Mail. It's Murder Appeal. Lurgan man Shane Whitlaw was shot in an alleyway close to the town to when to where the, his body was found, said police investigating his murder after they released CCTV footage of the suspect, suspected killers running from the crime scene. Mr Whitler, who was 39 years old and the father of four children, was gunned down in the alleyway just off Woodville Street in Lurgan last Thursday night. Shot several times, including in the back, Shane made his way into the nearby Lord Lurgan Park where he collapsed and died. On Tuesday night, detectives from the Police Service of Northern Ireland's major investigation team investigating the murder of Shane Whitlaw released CCT footage. The 39-year-old father of four was discovered in a park in Lurgan on the evening of Thursday, January the 12th, and was subsequently pronounced dead. Detective Chief Inspector John Caldwell said, CCTV footage now confirms that the gunmen shot Shane in the alleyway off Woodville Street, which is near to Shane's home. After being shot, he made his way to the park, where he subsequently collapsed and died. At this stage, the two gunmen ran back through the alleyway on Woodville Street, one ahead of the other. They turned right, then left into Victoria Street. Detective Inspector Caldwell continued, Our CCTV footage shows Shane leaving his house on Victoria Street and walking into Woodville Street when he walks into an entry. I believe the two gunmen were waiting for Shane and the CCTV shows these two people walk from the Victoria Gardens and turn left onto Victoria Street, then into Woodville Street and into the entry seconds later after Shane. I'm asking you to take a good look at this footage. Do you recognise either of these men? I am reiterating our appeal for anyone with information to come forward. Please contact us on 101. And I'm also keen to highlight the reward of up to £20,000 from Crime Stoppers, who are, in, who are a charity and independent of the police. And from the Portadown Times. An 11-year-old primary school girl with a heart of gold helped brighten up Christmas for many sick children in Craigavon Hospital's Blossom Ward. Maisie McBride, a primary seven pupil at Richmond Primary School at Scott Street in Portadown, is always keen to help and give, give to others, and she has raised thousands of pounds for various charities and donated her hair twice to the Little Princess Trust for hair pieces for children receiving treatment and losing their hair. As an only child, Maisie's mum, Susan, says she's always been a very kind, thoughtful personality, always thinking of others in everything she does. Just last year, Maisie raised a total of £1,130 through organising a raffle with prizes donated by local businesses, a bucket collection and hosting a family quiz night. 
on Christmas Day 2021, Maisie decided that she wanted to fundraise independently in 2022 for organisations that support children who are experiencing ill health, including to donate more of her hair to the Little Princess Trust and to raise money to provide every child in Blossom Children's Ward in Craigavon Area Hospital with a gift on Christmas Day 2022. On May the 1st, 2022, Maisie had her hair cut again, all 10.5 inches of it, and made a cash donation of £85 to Little Princesses Trust. Last November, she decided to raise funds for the Children's Ward and ran a family quiz and raffle to raise the cash to buy gifts and toys. Maisie has never been admitted to the Children's Ward in her life and had never seen the Children's Ward environment until she went along at Christmas. Maisie wrote a letter to local businesses and distributed these around the various shops in Portadown and the surrounding areas, explaining who she was and what she was intending to do. Mum Susan said the response was amazing, with a number of local businesses making contact to donate a gift to the raffle. P&G Family Foods invited Maisie to complete a bucket collection in December, and from all these events, Maisie raised £1,130. During the fundraising events, Maisie kept contact with the activity therapist in Blossom Children's Ward to determine what items she could purchase that the children would most benefit from in the children's ward. Maisie bought 10 baby cot mobiles, Duplo Lego, Stickle Bricks, Peppa Pig toys, Switch multiplayer gaming station, multiple Switch games and games for the Xbox gaming station. Plus, she made 14 overnight stay bags with toiletries for parents and children admitted to hospital. Her final shop was to buy 20 Christmas presents for children staying on the ward over Christmas. On December the 23rd, Maisie donated the gifts and had the opportunity to see the children's ward for the first time. Her mum said, Maisie's dad and myself are super proud of her. Now, the road a chemist. During the week ahead... Urgent prescriptions will be dispensed at the following addresses, starting with Portadown. On Sunday the 22nd of January, the chemist is Anderson's of Thomas Street, open from 11am to 12 noon. Next week, from Monday the 23rd of January, the chemist is Cherry Mount of Ashgrove Shopping Centre, open until 7pm. There is no road to chemist in Portadown after Wednesday. Lurgan residents can collect prescribed medications on Sunday the 22nd of January. The chemist is Winrose of William Street, open from 7 to 8pm. Next week from Monday the 23rd of January, the chemist is Clare Health Centre or of High Street, open until 7pm. There is no rota chemist in Lurgan on Wednesday and none in either town on Saturday, Sunday Saturday, Sunday opening applies in both towns for public holidays. And for crime, we have one item. Two men were arrested after a suspected cannabis factory was discovered by police in Craigavon last week. A PSNI spokesperson said, police have arrested two men after discovering a suspected cannabis factory at a property in Craigavon yesterday, which was Tuesday the 10th of January. Inspector McCullough said, shortly after 5.15pm, officers received and responded to a report of suspicious activity at a house in the Carrigart Crescent area. Upon arrival, they located a man in the roof space of the property. 
A quantity of suspected cannabis, cannabis plants, together with associated equipment, was also located inside the premises. The man, aged 19, was arrested on suspicion of offences including burglary with intent to steal, cultivating cannabis, dishonestly using electricity, possession of a Class B drug with intent to supply, and possession of a Class B controlled drug. A second man, aged 32, was also arrested on suspicion of offences including burglary, cultivating cannabis, possession of a Class B controlled drug, possession of a Class B controlled drug with intent to supply, and using a motor vehicle without insurance. We are committed to tackling the illegal supply and use of drugs and will continue to investigate those who profit from the consequent misery and harm. Our investigation is ongoing and I would ask any member of the public who has any information which could be of assistance to police to contact the police on the non-emergency number 101. Alternatively, information can also be provided to the independent charity Crime Stoppers on 0800 555 111, which is 100% anonymous and gives people the power to speak up and stop crime. Now we have local government. Unionists should use rights. Unionists need to catch up with others in deploying the language of human rights, MPs have been told. That is the view expressed by MP Carla Lockhart by Alison Kilpatrick, Chief Commissioner at the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, NIHRC, who was giving evidence to Parliament's Northern Ireland Affairs Committee about the government's plans to scuttle the 1998 Human Rights Act. Ms Kilpatrick also told MPs that the PSNI top brass is opposed to any attempts to alter, let alone, let alone repeal the Human Rights Act. The Tory government is currently pushing a draft law called the Bill of Rights Bill through Parliament. In its own words, the bill will reform the law relating to human rights by repealing and replacing the Human Rights Act. The Tories have long complained about the Human Rights Act, which essentially waves the Europe Convention on Human Rights into UK law. For example, during a previous effort to repeal the Act, Tory MP Charlie Elphick said human rights matter, but they are in crisis today, with a substantial majority of the British people regarding human rights as a charter for criminals and the under undeserving. The European Convention has often been invoked in the Belfast courts as a way of trying to reignite police investigations into old killings such as that of Pat Finucan. These convention rights were also recently used to successfully challenge the Counter-Terrorism and Sentencing Act 2021. This was a law which said convicts, convicts must serve two-thirds of their sentence, not half, before being eligible for release on licence. In that particular case, the applicants were four men jailed after a continuity IRA bugging operation. DUP MP Carla Lockhart put it to Miss Kilpatrick that the unionist community often feel their rights aren't as well maybe legislated for as other groups. Miss Kilpatrick said she was aware of the sentiment, saying some unionists feel that when it comes to human rights law, there's nothing in it for them. 
She added that it is the way it's put to me sometimes. It seems to be they're confined to people who fall into a certain category. And there is some truth to the fact that more cases have been taken by those people because they use the language of rights. They've been more familiar with it. I think the shortfall actually is the unionist community needs to start using the language of rights more itself. She also said that we're trying to really reach out and engage to put on the record. I'd very much like to invite any people who feel human rights haven't applied to them to come to the Commission and tell us that and tell us why. Quizzed by Alliance Stephen Farry about the effort scrapping and act the act would have on policing. Miss Kilpatrick said every senior police officer that I spoke to none of them want to use the Human Rights Act amended let alone repealed. She added don't take my word for it ask any senior police officer but also rank and file officers as well. They may be struggled they may be struggled a little bit at the start, but once they got used to it, they like it. They're proud of it. They're professional and they recognise they are human rights champions. They're rightly proud of it. The UK government's proposed legislation on minimum service levels during strikes has been met with near-unanimous opposition from Northern Ireland's main political parties. Under the draft strikes minimum service levels, Bill, bosses would legally be able to fire employees who ignore a work notice, requiring them to work on strike days. While the proposed legislation won't apply in Northern Ireland unless action is taken to introduce it, the five main Stormont parties have all outlined opposition. SDLP leader Colm Eastwood said the legislation showed the government is extremely out of touch and the laws cannot be allowed to proceed. He added, if the British government wants to avoid strike action, then it should ensure that workers are paid fairly and feel respected in their jobs by supporting unions and facilitating agreements with businesses, not by trying to demonise them. A UUP spokesperson said, the government's proposed legislation is not something we would support in Northern Ireland. Fair pay and effective dispute resolution should be the focus. Alliance Deputy Leader Stephen Farry said he had previously acted to prevent an act applying in Northern Ireland. He said, I will be opposing this anti-strike legislation every step of the way and hope others will join me. As Minister in 2016, I blocked the Trade Union Act from applying here. Sinn Féin's Gemma Dolan said, Sinn Féin is opposed to these Tory attacks on workers' rights. Uh, and now it's sport. Starting off with rugby. Mixed fortunes for Portadown. Portadown hosted Donahadee on Saturday for their first home game of 2023. Portadown started the game strong and eventually took the lead with fullback Matthew Neils crossing for the first score. Neils scored again shortly after to leave the early score at 10 0. Some strong scrummaging work set up the next, allowing Captain James Wright to crash over. Just before half-time, scrum half drew Fleck, 
cross the line to make it 22-0 at the half. Portadown started the second half well and had the win behind their backs. They opened their account for the first half with a great medal try by the Formers with RJ Greenlee going over to make it 27-0. Portadown finished the scoring off with a try from centre Marshall Clint and that's how the game finished. The score, Portadown 34, Donahadi nil. Portadown take on Coleraine away this Saturday. Football. Glenavon will hope for a reaction this weekend after being thrashed 6-1 by Linfield at Moan View Park on Saturday afternoon. The Lurgan Blues travel to Stangmore Park on Saturday to take on 11th placed Dungannon Swifts, fresh from a beating at the hands of the Windsor Park men. The route started early on when Andrew Clark put the visitors in front on six minutes when his deflected shot beat Rory Brown to find the net. Glenavon goalkeeper Brown was busy in the early minutes. He did well to hold a free kick that was whipped in from the left by Kyle McLean in the third minute. Well, three minutes later, he was forced to tip a Joel Cooper cross-come shot behind for a corner. It was from that corner that Linfield opened the scoring. McLean curled the set-piece in from the left. Glenavon failed to clear, and the ball eventually fell to Andrew Clark just inside the penalty area. Clark's low right-foot shot took a deflection off Callum Burney and beat Brown to find the net. Clark had another half-chance on 12 minutes, but this time his low shot went wide of the far post. The Blues might have doubled their lead five minutes after the opener when Finlayson headed narrowly wide from another McLean corner from the left. Conor McCloskey scored a superb equaliser for Glenavon in the 18th minute when he volleyed home from the corner care pass. It came against the run of play. Matthew Fitzpatrick nodded a header down to find Kerr on the right. The full-back stepped inside Shields and clipped a clever ball into the box to find McCloskey, who struck a super first-time volley with his right foot, which beat the dive of Johns and nestled in the bottom corner. It was one-way traffic in the second half, however, with Linfield taking the lead again on 53 minutes, when Sam Roscoe drilled a low shot in off the post. And Etu Vertinen doubled the Blues' disadvantage four minutes later when he converted from Andrew Clark Cross. Linfield scored a fourth from the penalty spot in the 65th minute, with the impressive Chris Shields converting after Daniel Finlayson had been brought down by Glenavon captain Danny Wallace. Substitute Mark Haygarth completed the scoring on 83 minutes. Nominations revealed for Irish Ceremony in Belfast. The nominations have been revealed for the Irish Motorbike Awards in Belfast on Friday, which returned to the Crown Plaza Hotel for the first time since 2020. Adelaide Motorbike Insurance are back on board as the main sponsors of the ticket-only ceremony, which has been held virtually in recent years as a result of COVID-19 pandemic. World Superbike star Jonathan Ray has been crowned Irish Motorcyclist of the Year seven years in a row and has won the top accolade a record nine times in total, surpassing eight times winner Joey Dunlop. Stephen Sutherland, Managing Director of Corn Market Insurance, said he was extremely proud as Adelaide Motorbike Insurance continues its title sponsorship of the event. The awards will be hosted by Stephen Watson and Keith Hewan. 
These are the nominations. Kawasaki Young Writer of the Year, Jack Burroughs, Mason Crawford, Cameron Dawson, Sophie Ferguson, Sam Laffins, James McManus, Cole McCullough, Scott Swan and Peter Willis. Sloan Helicopter Short Circuit Rider, Irish Circuits. The nominations are Joyce Elliott, Jason Lynn, Ewan Midlinchy, Thomas O'Grady, Alistair Seeley. In the category Zero Fit Short Circuit Rider UK Circuits, the nominations are Andrew Irwin, Glenn Irwin, Lee Johnston, Jack Kennedy, James McManus and Richard Kerr. In the category Actavora Off-Road Rider, the nominations are Mason Crawford, Sophie Ferguson, Joyce Hanlon, John Mayra, Mark McLernan, Jordan Scott, Gary Moulds and Lewis Gray. In the Belfast Telegraph National Road Racer, the nominations are Mike Brown, Adam McLean, Michael Sweeney. And the IFS International Road Racer, the nominations are Connor Cummings, Michael Dunlop, Dean Harrison, Peter Hickman, Glenn Irwin, Lee Johnson, Davy Todd and Alistair Seeley. In the Bayview Hotel Team of the Year, the nominations are MD Racing, IFS Yamaha, Martrain Racing, Michael Sweeney Racing, TAS Racing and Wilson Craig Racing. And in A. McLean Bookmakers Race of the Year, the nominations are Thomas O'Grady, Last Gap Pass on Derek Shields at Mondello Park to lift the Dunlop Masters Superbike title, Glenn Irwin and Davy Todd, Opening Superbike Race at the Northwest 200, Richard Kerr, Debut Victory in the National Superstock 1000 Championship Race at Knock Hill by 0.023 S. Jonathan Ray, World Superbike win in race two at Estrel in Portugal after last lap battle with Alvaro Bautista. James McManus, breathtaking win in British Junior Supersport race at Oldham Park. Lee Johnson and Davy Todd, thrilling second Supersport race at Northwest 200 with Johnson edging the verdict by 0. 093 seconds. Jimmy Card, Michael Sweeney and Paul Jordan, trio covered by 0.023 seconds in Super Twin Race at Armoy. Michael Dunlop, Ulster Rider, beats Dean Harrison and Davy Todd for 22nd win at Southern 100 in Supersport Race. Other accolades include the Emporio Special Recognition Award, the Greenlight Television King of the Roads Award, Monster Energy Services to Motorcycling, Classic Bike Festival Outstanding Achievement Award and the prestigious Hall of Fame with honours sponsored by Corrine Kawasaki. The Arena Cross Tour, presented by Fix Auto UK, returns to Belfast for the first time in three years on Friday and Saturday and is a complete sellout as thousands of fans prepare to flock to SSE Arena to cheer on their local heroes. Ballyclare's Martin Barr, who rides in the pro class, finished third back in 2005 before standing on the top step in 2012 and is relishing the chance to compete at the event once more. 
The place erupted and the hair stood on the back of my neck. It was unbelievable, said Barr. Can the Apico Susparna rider can make the podium in Belfast 2023? With a star-spangled entry list, which includes the reigning 2022 British MX1 champion Tommy Searle and his MX2 counterpart Conrad Muse, it will not be easy. Barr added, it's tight and it's a contact sport so anything can happen in arena cross. If I feel comfortable and in a good position, I will push on. I have done it a fair few times throughout my career and always enjoy it. This year will be a more level playing field with British only riders and no arena cross specialists like in previous years. Personally, I would prefer fast to be round three or four because I always seem to get better as the series progresses but it would be a good race again in front of the home fans. The locally based all moto Yamaha powered by Start Solar Team will also be on the grid with Lock Bricklin's Jason Mera and James Mackerel from Dundonald. Mackerel said, although I won the All-Ireland class a few years ago, I've always wanted a good crack at the pro class. Hopefully, I can give it a good going in a few days' time. Charlie Irwin from Ballyclare will be racing in the AX Futures British Championship class on the discount Beds 250 Honda. The 15-year-old's big arena cross breakthrough came in Belfast 2020 with victory on both nights in the 85 Super Mini class. It will be his first time riding the 250 Honda indoors, but he is quite confident of a good performance after a great 2022 outdoor season when he won the Scottish Youth Rookie Championship. Fellow locals Niall Cregan from Bambridge, Australia's Niall Clerken and Navin's Jake Farrelly line up with Irwin. In the same class, visitors Olivia Reynolds, Beanice Reese, and Anya Colley get ready to prove themselves against their male counterparts. Almost Lewis Spratt finished third in Belfast in 2020 in the SW85 class and just missed third place in the championship for the final round by one point. As the 2022 Scottish Super Mini champion lines up in the Super Mini class on the McCullough Centre KTM, he will definitely be chasing a podium again in Belfast and finish top three in the overall championship. Hayden Gibson from Maherfelt, Ballyclare Samuel Logan and Dormara's Ben McConville complete the local interest in the class. In the AXE5 electric class, six-year-old, Dan Patrick Ryder, Ollie Denver, is one of the youngest to line up in Belfast. The top four from each of the rounds will complete in the Arena Cross finale in London. Ulster rugby season would have a very different complexion if flanker Nick Timoney's first half try has stood against European champions La Rochelle. The Ireland back row had the ball dislodged in the process of grounding it and the place was adjudged a knock-on. The try would have given Ulster a much-needed victory in France and offered the chance of a last 16 tie in Belfast in the Champions Cup if victory could be achieved over sale at the Kingspan Stadium on Saturday night. 
Instead, Ulster leading 3-0 conceded an 82nd minute converted try to slump by 7-3 to a 6 defeat in 7 games and now face the English Premiership side knowing they must win to reach the knockout stages. The highest Ulster can now finish is 7th with a trip to the side that finished top or second in pool if they beat Sale. It was the third time in three consecutive games Ulster have blown a lead in the closing stages. Hickman welcomes expanded TT race schedule for 2023. Outright lap record holder Peter Hickman says this year's expanded race programme at the Isle of Man TT offers riders and teams a fresh incentive. The nine-time winner clinched a quadruple last year with a superbike and senior double and victories in the super twin and super stock races around the mountain course. In a revamp for 2023, a new 10-race programme is planned, featuring two super twin and super stock races, as well as a fresh qualifying schedule. Entries for this year's TT are now officially open. It's great that we'll get the opportunity to race twice in each class, said Hickman, who is again competing for the FHO Racing BMW team this season. There's also a real incentive there now for teams and competitors to put together more race-winning packages, with the Super Stock and Super Twin Classics now offering a much better return for similar investment and commitment. At the same time, I know that a little mistake or a minor mechanical issue can run ruin a race and all you can think about is having to wait another 12 months before you get to try again. With two races per class, you not only get another bite at the cherry, but you can learn a lot from the first race, which you can take forward to the second. Those races at the end of race week in particular, I would expect to be hugely competitive and hard fought. This year heralds the 102nd year of the TT, which commences with the untimed free practice sessions May 29th, followed by the first timed qualifying session in the afternoon. Evening qualifying sessions will be held on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday of the practice week, with the fifth and final qualifying session scheduled for on Friday afternoon. Racing will begin with the first supersport and sidecar races on June the 3rd, with the Superbike TT on June the 4th. June the 5th will be a race day, followed by the Superstock and first Super Twin race on June the 6th with the second Supersport and sidecar races due on June the 7th. A second race day is planned on June the 8th, with the second Superstock and the Super Twin races headlining June the 9th. The festival will conclude with the Blue Ribbon Senior TT on June the 10th. And now, general news. Almost one in ten bags of cold under correct weight. Short-weight bags of coal may be contributing to the cost-of-living crisis, an investigation by the Department for the Economy's Trading Standards Service was found. Nearly a tenth of all coal bags checked in the past three months were short. A spokesperson for the Stormont Department explained, over the past three months, TSS officers have visited 35 retail premises across Northern Ireland to check the weight of both 20 kilo and 25 kilo bags of coal to ensure consumers are getting what they pay for. 
a total of 1,107 bags of coal were checked from various packers and officers found that 103, 90.3%, were short weight. The spokesperson continued, with the average deficiency in each short weight bag being one kilo, this equates to consumer detriment of up to 87 pence per bag. The largest deficiency of 2.7 kilos was found in a 20 kilo bag, resulting in a £2.37 detriment to the consumer. Although the majority of bags did not cause concern in total, the bags of coal from 10 different packers were found to be short weight. TSS has taken steps to advise those businesses responsible for placing the short weight products on the market and will conduct further inspections in the coming months. Any trader found to be selling short weight bags of coal may face enforcement action. Judith Guff, Deputy Chief Trading Standards Inspector, said, Given the growing demand for coal across Northern Ireland and the continuing cost of living crisis, it is imperative that consumers do not get shortchanged. Many households on low incomes who have no alternative heating source will be alarmed to hear that almost one in ten bags of inspe- inspected by TSS were short weight. Measurement is at the heart of fair trading and is a core issue for TSS. These inspections help to ensure that businesses are weighing and measuring accurately and consumers are getting the right quantity of goods. With the current cost of living crisis, it is even more important that the processes and systems that should be in place are working properly and consumers are getting what they pay for. TSS will continue to work closely with coal packers across the country to make sure that any issues of short weight are eradicated. Lurgan has seen a surgeon women seeking self-defence classes following the brutal murder of Natalie McNally. It has been almost four weeks since the 32-year-old who was expecting a baby boy was attacked and stabbed in her own home in Silverwood Green. Despite heartbreaking appeals by her family and the release of CCTV footage of a potential suspect, the PSNI has yet to charge anyone with her murder, although one man aged 32 arrested three days after her murder and bailed remains a suspect in the inquiry. Many women and girls in the Lurgan and Craigavon area have shared their fears on social media and their frustration that Natalie's killer is still at large. Martial arts expert Martin O'Neill said, Women are anxious, there's a lot of fear and anxiety out there among women because they still haven't caught that guy. I wanted to do something about it, so I organised a few free self-defence classes. There has been a very good response, said Martin, adding that around 50 people responded to the first post offering the class. The Lurgan native, who has been a martial arts expert and teacher for decades, said some people have the idea that self-defence is martial arts and martial arts is self-defence, but they're not the same. Martin explained, self-defence is really about awareness, raising and knowing about pre-attack indicators, knowing about the adrenaline system, knowing about the fight, flight or freeze issues. It's about keeping distance and awareness in your surroundings and not walking around looking into your phone. It's about being aware of where you are, what you're doing, and the body language is important. Your body language and the potential predator's body language. 
Martin added, we are very grateful to Gary and Kevin Creaney for allowing us to use their gym free of charge for the event. Please confirm your attendance as numbers will be limited. I have had lots of inquiries, but I'm reluctant to turn any away, so it may be busy. Bring some water and a small towel. Also running classes in North Lorgan and Drumgas Community Safety Engagement Forum. Anyone who is interested can contact them via their Facebook page. The Lurgan One Free of Charge Women's Self-Defence Course will take place on Thursday the 12th and Thursday the 19th of January at 7.30pm. The venue is Cayugin BJJ Gym in Churchwalk, Lurgan. Please wear comfortable clothing. No shoes on the mat, please. You can wear socks or go barefoot. Volunteers clean up rubbish in river. From bowling balls to a surge in spray paint cans and even a wheelbarrow, John Medlow of Riverband Cleanup has collected the most unusual items from the Riverband near Portadown. John has gathered a small army of volunteers who are out in all weathers litter picking in canoes, gathering large quantities of plastic bags on floating rafts and sorting the rubbish for recycling. Last week, after paddle picks as well as sorting and counting what was removed from a small stretch of the river ban, John said, where are we as a society that we consider littering normal behaviour? This isn't the result of one section of society, age, group, occupation or none. Ultimately, we are all responsible for this. Whether you dump it directly into the river or its banks, leave it at the end of your land for the floods to take, dump your rubbish on the streets and roads or wherever else, it is us who are destroying the environment that sustains us. You wouldn't want this on your own doorstep, so why is it acceptable to dump it on nature's? We need a rethink. On one day alone, their haul included 595 plastic bottles, 350 glass bottles, 68 cans, 41 spray cans, 23 tennis balls, 15 footballs, 14 plastic stroke rubber balls, 8 plastic buckets, 8 pieces of footwear, 5 plastic plant pots and 4 bin bags of miscellaneous litter. Among other things they collected 3 plastic ducks, 2 paint tins, a wheelbarrow wheel and a 10 pin bowling ball. John, who started the clean-up just over three years ago, began canoeing with his brother-in-law from the River Ban at Guildford and they travelled the entire length of the river to where it enters Loch Ney at the Ban Foot. Last year, they carried out 24 litter picks with 83 volunteers giving around 520 hours of their time to cleaning up the river. They collected 2,571 plastic bottles and 1,278 glass bottles, which was down on the year before. They collected 754 tin cans 136 tennis balls and 112 footballs, also a reduction on the previous years. There was a spike in the number of plastic buckets dumped, with John and crew collecting a total of 75 last year. They did collect half the number of this of his bin bags full of miscellaneous litter, a total of 24.5 bags, down from 49.5 the year before but they retrieved more than double the number of life boy rings, a total of 23, whereas in the previous year they collected 10. Gemma is best in UK. Gemma Forsyth, who works in Lurgan's McGee Dental Care Surgery, 
has been crowned the best dental nurse in the UK. Mum of one, Gemma, was given her huge accolade at the Dentistry Awards in Leicester at the end of last year. Gemma from Portadown and a past pupil of Edenderry Primary School, Killicomain Junior High School and Craigavon Senior High studied the NEBDN Diploma in Dental Nursing at Southern Regional College. She said, The Dentistry Awards are the largest dental awards ceremony in the UK and tagged as Dentistry's Biggest Party. The occasion has become a well-respected ceremony, recognising excellence in dentistry across the whole of the UK. The awards are held in Leicester at the end of November each year. Unfortunately, I was unable to attend the award this year due to sickness, so I had to follow along at home via Instagram. McGee Dental Care also won the award of Best Patient Care in Northern Ireland, which I'm very proud of. We have a great team. I was entered this year for the category of Best Dental Nurse North and was thrilled to be the winner of that category. But to go on to win the overall award of Best Dental Nurse UK is mind-blowing. I'm so honoured and has made me feel so valued. It has been a whirlwind of a year for me, having won the award of Best Team Member at the Irish Dentistry Awards in September. I absolutely love my job. I'm so passionate about dental nursing as a career, and I try to raise the profile of dental nurses where I can. It is often an overlooked career, but we are crucial to the smooth running of any dental practice. Gemma, a qualified oral health educator, also visits schools and other facilities to teach the importance of maintaining a healthy mouth. She is also the infection prevention control lead at the Lurgan practice. She says she kind of fell into dentistry. I knew that I wanted to be in a career which allows me to care for others, she said, and when a job was advertised for a student dental nurse, I took it and have loved it ever since. Former police officer David Ronald Quigg, who is to be awarded a British Empire Medal, BEM, in the New Year's Honours list, says he is deeply honoured. David Ronald Quigg, BEM, who served a lifetime with the RUC, is to receive the award for services to police and military welfare in County Armagh. Mr Quigg revealed he had received an email telling him he was being awarded the BEM and initially thought it was a scam. Ever vigilant, Ronnie was suspicious of the, the email, but when he investigated and realised it was legitimate, he said he was delighted with the honour. In 1972, Ronnie was a founder member of the RUC Lorgan Police Welfare Group and was involved with the group until he retired in 1997. Not only was he involved in the RUC Welfare Group, but he is the administrator of the County Armagh Phoenix Group, which is a befriending organisation for all the security forces, including military, prison service and police. When he retired, he became involved with the RUCGC County Armagh branch and is now chairman. In 1999, the RUC was awarded the George Cross in recognition of the collective and sustained bravery of the force, including its families. It then became the Royal Ulster Constabulary George Cross. He is also a retired safety officer of Glenavon, but continues to provide assistance on match days. He is also chairman of CAPG Fundraising Committee for the County Armagh Memorial Wall, situated in the grounds of St Mark's Church Armagh. 
Funded entirely by public donations, the 90-foot-long memorial wall in St Mark's Church is fitted with a number of marble tablets listing the names of the 346 men and women who died as a direct result of terrorist activity. Regarding his BEM, Mr Quigg said, It was a great surprise and a great honour. I feel very honoured. I did not expect it. In fact, I thought it was a scam. It came in an email and at first I ignored it. He believes that he will be attending a special presentation in Hillsborough to receive the award and is told there may be an invitation to the Royal Garden Party as well. Northern Ireland Nursing Union strike decision due. Decisions on further strikes by members of the Royal College of Nursing, RCN, in the Northern Ireland Health Services will be taken in the coming weeks, a union spokesperson has said. Nurses in England are set to strike this week, with further dates now set for England and Wales in February, following announcement from the union on Monday night that is escalating its dispute over pay and staffing levels. An RCN spokesperson in a statement said, We are escalating nursing strikes on the 6th and 7th of February after governments refuse to seriously negotiate. If progress isn't made by the end of January, members in England and Wales will go on strike on the 6th and 7th of February following the refusal of the UK and Welsh governments to seriously negotiate on the current year's NHS pay deal. The spokesperson added, Decisions on further strike action in Northern Ireland will be taken in the coming weeks if there is no movement from the UK government to commence negotiations on pay. In Scotland, strike action remains paused while negotiations continue. The RCN General Secretary, Pat Cullen, added, It is with a heavy heart that nursing staff are striking this week and again in three weeks. We are doing this in a desperate bid to get ministers to rescue the NHS. The only credible solution is to address the tens of thousands of unfilled jobs patient care is suffering like never before. My olive branch to governments asking them to meet me halfway and begin negotiations is still there. They should grab it. The union said it is committed to staging safe and effective strikes that maintain life-preserving services. As industrial action took place in December, the chief executives of Northern Ireland's health trusts confirmed that contingency plans were in place to protect critical services during the prolonged period of industrial action. They also expressed support for staff being properly rewarded and highlighted work carried out by the health workers to get the country through the peaks of the COVID-19 pandemic. Stroke survivor urges people to check pulses. A stroke survivor from Marilyn is backing a charity's plea for people to carry out a simple test on themselves in case they have a silent condition which could cause a serious stroke. Paul McLean had atrial fibrillation, or AF, where the heart beats with an irregular rhythm. When this happens, the heart won't empty all of the blood out of its chambers with every beat, and the leftover blood can form clots which travel to the brain, blocking off blood flow and causing a stroke. The Stroke Association is urging people by checking their own pulse to make sure it's not irregular. Paul, a former teacher, had a stroke in June 2016 when he was aged 40. His stroke had a number of known risk factors, including dilated 
cardiomyopathy, high blood pressure, and atrial fibrillation. Paul's stroke occurred on a Saturday morning while he was at home with his wife, Suzanne. He first began to notice something was wrong when he couldn't lift his right hand. Paul and his wife acted fast, F-A-S-T, and he was able to have the life-saving procedure thrombectomy, where a clot is removed from a blood vessel in the brain. I was really lucky that a doctor was available on the weekend and just happened to be at the hospital that day to do the thrombectomy. I was lucky that things happened when they did, but not everyone is, and that is why it is so important to reduce the risk of stroke. It is so important that people check for atrial fibrillation. It's a simple test that could save your life. I have spoken to so many stroke survivors who never knew they had atrial fibrillation until after they had a stroke. I also knew when I was feeling faint, I needed to make sure I looked after myself and get checked. Lots of people say they felt the same, but they had no idea it was a sign of atrial fibrillation. I firmly believe there is a reason I survived my stroke. There's a reason the specialist doctor was there that Saturday and saved my life. I'm determined to live each day to the full, and I want to raise awareness of stroke and help prevent others who have AF from having a stroke. So please check your heartbeat, and if there's anything you think isn't right, get it checked out, as it could help prevent you from having a stroke. A survey by the Stroke Association to mark Stroke Prevention Day, Thursday, January the 12th, reveals that almost three in four people, 73%, did not know that AF is a major cause of stroke. The charity has a video uh, guide on its website at www.stroke.org.uk forward slash SPD23. Showing people how they can check their own pulse on their wrist or neck. Alistair O'Hara, Associate Director for Stroke Association in Northern Ireland, said, It's worrying that so few people know that a little thing like how your heart beats can lead to a massive stroke. AF often has no symptoms and a stroke can strike without warning. Don't let the first sign of your AF be a sudden and life-changing stroke. With early diagnosis and effective management of AF, your risk of a stroke dramatically decreases, so it's vital to get checked regularly. Free food and fun. A fun day with free food, music and crack is being organised by a Portadown community group inspired by the European folk story of Stone Soup. The event called Community Stone Soup Day will be held this Saturday, January the 20th, 21st, in the Richmount Centre in Portadown. A spokesperson for the Richmount Rural Community Association said, All we ask is that participants co- contribute something small, such as a bun or a scone. This means they have jointly put the event together. All musicians are welcome and already signed up to entertain are we, Tom, country and western singers, Kitty's Disco, face painting and the champion drummer and piper Lee Lawson Irwin. Lee has to be seen and heard on the snare drum. It is pure magic. Our community shop event for this Saturday the 21st of January is for everyone. Doesn't matter where you come from or what age. 
also get some soup for those who cannot come. It's free. Tea and coffee will be available. The event will run from 11am to 3pm and all volunteers welcome also. The fun day is based on the old European folk story about stone soup, about a group of hungry travellers who arrived at a village with nothing but a stone in a sack. Their arrival was met with suspicious glances and the villagers were unwilling to share their food. The travellers asked for a pot to cook and one kind old villager obliged. The travellers then began to cook with water from the stream and put stones in the pot. They explained they were making stone soup and invited the villagers to try, despite it missing a little garnish, to improve the flavour. One villager who wanted to taste the soup didn't mind sharing some carrots and soon other villagers were offering their ingredients until the pot was full of all sorts of vegetables from potatoes to onions and cabbage. Finally, the stone is removed from the pot and a hearty soup is revealed from the collective ingredients of the villagers. We would also hope that this could be replicated elsewhere and it is all about people working together rather than just taking. It also gives people who may need a little help in these times dignity. We have now come to the end of our recording for this week. Brian, who uh, for many years read the sport, has decided to retire. We wish him well as he enjoys his newfound freedom. Editing this week were William and Catherine. Our technician was William. And reading with me this week were Catherine and Patricia. From the newsroom at the Old Manse, this is Bob signing off. Thank you for spending time with us. All our good wishes for the week ahead. Our team will be back with you in four weeks' time. Please remember to return your wallet. Sound News is a Craig Avon Talking Newspaper production. Good to have your company. In a few moments, Portadown members of Business and Professional Women NI, joined by members of Sir Optimus International Portadown, will record the January 2023 edition of the Science Friendly Talking Magazine. From the heart of Portadown, with assistance from our many volunteers at the Old Man Studio, Church Street, you're listening to Craig Avon Talking Newspaper, a registered charity with over 40 local volunteers who help out each month. Before we start, a reminder of some housekeeping. Having listened to our news and magazine, you're reminded to promptly return the recording you're listening to now in the pallet wallet provided with it. 
Please enclose any comments about the service our volunteers provide in writing, along with the USB pen drive. And of course, to guarantee a prompt delivery of your next edition, please remember to reverse the address label before setting off for the post box. This week we feature Top Loader for our Song of the Week and some extracts from recent UK and Irish newspapers, magazines and much, much more. Hello, my name's Ruth. I'm from the BPW Club um, in Portadown. And uh, tonight I'm going to bring you an article. Um, it's from the BBC uh, News app, which is somewhere where I like to go to get um, a lot of current information, the news and um, some other stuff. But this particular article caught my eye and it's about why some people are always running late. Now, if this was timed and it was live, you would know that I arrived late tonight. I have a number of excuses. It's frosty outside. There was lots of cars parked outside. Um, It's not my fault, really. But confession, I am a late person. At least one one in recovery, says the author of this article called Laura Clark. In fact, I've repeatedly and embarrassingly missed the deadline for this article. I'd love to pretend this is some journalistic form of method acting. It is not. I know I'm not alone. We all know that person. There's the childminder who's always late, the colleague who misses every deadline, even if just by a few hours. The friend you must tell to arrive 30 minutes earlier than she needs to for your lunch reservation. There are a few habits There are a few habits as infuriating as someone making us wait. But despite what may be running through your mind as you're kept waiting again, it's unlikely your friends and colleagues are just being selfish. A look at the psychology of lateness offers a glimpse into a mind that might be malfunctioning, but there's almost always more than one fix. Perceptions of unpunctual people are almost always negative, even if misguided. It is easy to perceive them as disorganised, chaotic, rude and lacking in consideration for others. Harriet Mellott, a cognitive behaviour therapist and a clinical psychologist in training in London, says, outside of my clinical practice, Others being late is something that can particularly get under my skin. But many late people are at least somewhat organised and want to keep friends, family and bosses happy. The punctually challenged are often excruciatingly aware and ashamed of the damage their lateness could do to their relationships, reputation, career and finances. While there are those who get a charge out of keeping others waiting, if you're typical, you dislike being late. Diana writes in her book, Never Be Late Again. Yet tardiness remains your nemesis. Some excuses, particularly for acute lateness, are fairly universally accepted. An accident or illness, for example. But others aren't so easy to swallow. Some late people will pass it off as a symptom of being big thinking and concerned with loftier matters than timekeeping. As an endearing quirk, a mark of doing one's best work under pressure or having the body clock of a night owl rather than a lark. Joanna, a teacher who didn't want her surname used, says her reputation for being unpunctual can sometimes be attributed to a difference in opinion. A friend will ask me to come over and they'll say, come any time from seven, she says. 
But if I do turn up at eight or late, later they're annoyed. Being consistently late may not be your fault. It could be your type. The punctually challenged often share personality characteristics such as optimism, low levels of self-control, anxiety or a penchant for thrill-seeking, experts say. Personality differences could also dictate how we experience the passing of time. In 2001, Jeff Conte, a psychologist professor at San Diego State University, ran a study in which he separated participants into type A people, ambitious and competitive, and type B people, creative, reflective and explorative. He asked them to judge without clocks how long it took for one minute to elapse. Type A people felt a minute had gone by when roughly 58 seconds had passed and type B participants felt a minute had gone by after 77 seconds. Late people often have a bizarre compulsion to defeat themselves, wrote a self-proclaimed late person and TED speaker Tim Urban in 2015. He gave these poor souls a name, CLIPS, C-L-I-P-S, chronically late, insane people. Of course, there are other reasons for lateness, but many remain self-inflicted. For starters, there's the anticipation of being late, or even too much attention to detail. For Joanna, the most distressing example is writing school reports. I never make the deadline, which looks like I don't care, she explains. I think about the reports for weeks and put so much angst into really assessing each child, but the fact that they are late undermines that. For some, lateness is a consequence of deeply distressing common mental health or neurological conditions. People with anxiety diagnosis are often, often avoid certain situations. Individuals with low self-esteem are likely to be critical about their abilities, which may cause them to take more time to check their work. And depression often comes with low energy, making mustering the motivation to get a move on all the harder. Dr. Linda Sapodin, a psychologist in private practice in New York and author of How to Beat Procrastination in the Digital Age, says some persistent lateness comes from an obsessive thinking problem. In short, she says, the procrastinator focuses on a fear attached to the event or deadline for which they are running late. Rather than figuring out how to get beyond the fear, the fear becomes the excuse, usually expressed with a but statement. For instance, you might tell yourself, I wanted to be on time for that event, but I couldn't decide what to wear. I started to write an article, but I was afraid my colleagues would find it not good enough. Whatever comes after the but is what counts. She tells people to change the word but to and. But denotes opposition and blockage and denotes connection and resolution, she explains. So the task becomes less daunting, the fear less of an obstacle. Delonser started on her path to punctuality by identifying and adapting the very thing that seems to always make her late. That was only after she failed over and over again to improve her timeliness, she says. And then she realised it was the thrill of being rushed that she craved. Changing what she craved was the only way to improve. As I worked towards the goal of being more timely, I began to see the importance of being a reliable person, she says. Developing that side of myself soon became a priority. Then there are the friends and loved ones who simply can't take it anymore. Some of Sapodin's clients arrived after a frustrated loved one has brought them to a session or course with her. For those left waiting, there is hope. You too can dictate what you're willing to put up with. Instead of getting angry or upset, you can take a stand and set boundaries, she says. Talk about what you will do if the other person isn't on time. For instance, tell your late friend you'll go to the movie without them if they're more than 10 minutes late. 
Tell that colleague who never turns his part of the project in on time that it just won't be included next time and the boss will know about it. For me, a turning point came when a good friend drew her line in the sand. I was an hour late for a run in our local park. That was it, she said. She wasn't going to make any more plans with me and so she set in motion the best thing for me, accountability and identifying and addressing underlying problems that led to my perpetual lateness. As the adage goes, old habits die hard and the agonising over this article is a deft illustration of that. But the next time I find myself keeping someone waiting, I'll be looking at my thinking and I'll try to change it, even just a little. So that's the views of Laura Clark on lateness. So I'll repeat what I said at the start. Sorry I'm late. And it was because of whatever's the best excuse out of that article. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, in fairness, um, without getting too boring about housekeeping, you are here as a glamorous assistant or a (laughs) stand-in. So we'll forgive you for that. Um, But I know I do think... (coughs) uh, um, I have to admit there are times I'm late... I was late for a class at Portdown Tech last Tuesday, 10 minutes late, and I had four phone calls and a complaint. And were you the teacher? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, the class is often late, mm-hmm. you know. And then I had, I mean, it makes it sound as if I'm late all the time. I was properly late for another class the next day. I can't remember why. It was something to do with traffic. Uh, no, they, t- they sent me to the wrong classroom. And I was sitting there. So I was there. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Uh, 45 minutes before I find the students sitting in the corridor waiting to get in. No, no complaint. <laughs> <laughs> You'd wonder why the students would ever complain yeah. about the teacher not turning up to a class. <laughs> Things have changed from I was in school. <laughs> well, you know, they don't like being kept waiting. And, you know, because of the way the classrooms are now, it's, you know, the teacher has to swipe them in. So you really are sitting on the floor outside until you get in, you know. No, I've got something here. Uh, Merle Edgar, who, good friend of mine, um, had lent me some books uh, by Jimmy Jennings. And you may remember Jimmy Jennings was a great favourite on the Talking Magazine. He used to record it with Alan Reefy and Felicity Rowland. And he wrote many books. And then um, of a local type, and <clears throat> Merle Edgar has kindly lent me uh, a three or four of them. And um, Jimmy did re- did write one uh, which raised money for the talking newspaper as well. Now, so the one I'm going to, the book is called Memories by Jimmy Jennings, and this feature is called The Games We Played. The games we played as children in the junction in Portadown included football, cricket, skittles, caddy, tennis, handball, skipping, spinning, tops, rounders, blowing, cigarette cards, hoops, marbles, hopscotch, I spy, follow the leader, flying kites, Races, Ring Ring a Rosie, Jack Jack Show Your Light, Tig, The Grand Old Duke of York, Down on the Carpet, Postman's Knock, The Farmer Wants a Wife, and there was also games like Tiddlywinks, Hide and Seek, Conkers, Find the Button, In and Out, The Windows, Drafts, Ludo, Snakes and Ladders, and all the other board games that are still popular today. 
We also made our own tents, which were made with old bags sewn together. And we camped out in the summertime in the brick field and also on the band meadows or the band bogs, as we knew it then. We had our picnics we also in the band meadows and we would go both boys and girls with our homemade sandwiches, the good old soda bread with plenty of jam spread on brave and thick, along with the two and a penny fizz bombs. Really, it was just coloured water. Uh, but to us, it was great fun and a pleasant time was had by all singing as we went and our mothers and fathers would not have seen us to bedtime. Then we did some fishing and, of course, the young girls had to come too. We had uh, homemade rods and nets uh, with our jam pots at the ready to try and catch sticklebacks or sprickles as we knew them then. If someone really did catch a grown fish, they were a hero. And so... Read the next one out, which is the street entertainers. And men and boys came around the streets where they sang and danced and played all kinds of musical instruments to earn a few extra pence. Or if they or if they were lucky, a few extra shillings. We as young boys and girls thought they were the greatest. We around the junction area, uh, which is sort of the other side, the town side of the rail bridge. You know, so if you Jervis Street and Port Down is one, the Armagh side of the railway bridge, the junction area is uh, the townward side. We'd sit on the grass bank or on the footpath or on the ground and listen and enjoy the fun. My, how the times have changed when by turning a knob or pulling a pitch we can have the top entertainers of the world in our living rooms. And yet, if you are like me, I can get so very bored with it all. Sometimes I say to myself, I wish I could turn the clock back and I was sitting in the summer nights with my piece of soda bread with plenty of strawberry jam on it, listening to the street entertainers. Magic. Uh, the card games played and greyhounds. The card games such as rummy, solo, old maid, poker, brag, pontoon, snap, come up, nap, whist and patience. In the junction we had our card schools. Sometimes we played indoors, other times weather permitting outdoors. If we had any money, if, we, if not we played for matches and more often we played to pass the time or just for fun. We also kept and raced greyhounds. My father loved coursing the racetrack dogs. He reared and bred some very good ones with the help of his good friend and leading bookmaker of the time, Mr. Tommy Timmons, who was an often welcome visitor at our home. A lasting memory for me was the rearing of one of my father's cast-off pups, and it was given to my mother and I to rear we cared and looked after it like a little baby with a small sucking bottle. And all my, what a thrill to see the finished article we called the pup Bluebell. Oh, and she was a lovely greyhound bitch. Her colour was a beautiful blue. I never saw anything so nice. And her racing name was Tilly's Bloomers. Can you ma- imagine the bookies calling out the odds on that name from the stand? Funny, but funny or not. Uh, Bluebell won some tremendous races for us in those days. We had what they called flapping tracks, such as Celtic Park in Lurgan, where the chapel is built on now. Then there was Glenavon Football Club, who had a track. There were others, of course, but different in ways to Dunmore and Celtic Park in Belfast. And other tracks who were registered tracks, the above were not. 
But in spite of this, they did a good business and indeed were well supported by bookies, owners, trainers and the public. It was great fun and exciting at the time, expensive too sometimes. But after my own father's Christian conversion, the greyhound and the racetracks and the gambling all had to go. Other people of the junction who kept greyhounds were such as Lincoln Brown, who kept and trained these dogs for Malocco Brothers, who had a cafe in the West Street. And there's a Malocco Brothers cafe in Newry still. They were such a lovely family and they kept the best and their greyhounds won races all over the place. Then there was Jim Bunny Elliott. I can remember him getting a greyhound called Chocolate Coon. And even he had seen better days. Old Chocolate won Jim the odd race, but had called fit, Fitting Fit. Maybe it should be Fighting Fit, but it says Fitting Sorry, he had been a young dog. He would have taken some stopping. Jack Grimley, owner, trainer of the dog, called Fitting Fit. Jack and I would have run faster ourselves. <laughs> and who in the junction can forget Stardust Boy? He cost the earth at the time. He was a very young greyhound at the sales. He looked every inch the perfect dog, but sad to say for his first owners on the track, a failure. He was fast and good enough, but he had one bad fault. He failed to follow the course round. <laughs> Stardust Boy, Luke, and believed in taking shortcuts. And as you know, or may not know, the powers that be do not take kindly to dogs who do that. And worse still, the bookmakers don't pay out on the greyhounds who don't finish the course. So we tried to sell Stardust this when their owners got fed up losing their money on him and gave him his last chance. Jack fed him on the junction best. He was trained to perfection by Jack and Michael Robinson. Everything that was possible was done to make Stardust race perfect. Over we all went to Lurgan to the Glenavon track. It was like an excursion. Every house had money on them to win. Uh, friends, it was not a happy ending. Need I say more? Jack sold Stardust later very cheap, of course. There were others, I think of Billy Quinn, who kept the odd greyhound and was well known around most racetracks. Another popular gambling game was Pitch and Toss. So, some memories, um, and I remember probably half the games that he listed. Um, and he, I don't think he mentioned British Bulldogs, but we'll forgive him for that. <laughs> now over to you. <laughs> um, good evening. Um, my name's Belinda, and I'm from um, Sir Optimus International mm-hmm. Portadown. Um, as I'm sure you all know, today is the 16th, which is known as Blue Monday. So um, I've just pulled out an article here, basically given the background to it. So as if we needed any more reason to ruminate over pandemic life's <laughs> daily plights, today, January the 16th, is Blue Monday, the third Monday of January, which is rumoured to be the most depressing day of the year. What is it? Research hasn't proved that there's any one more depressing day than all the others, but it's actually a PR stunt that has unfortunately cemented itself into modern culture. Every January now, blogs share their tips for how people can save themselves from the gloom. Companies jumped at the chance to promote their feel-good products and services, and social media follows suit. Right. The origin of the myth, basically, is Blue Monday began with a news release. In 2005, an now-defunct UK TV channel, Sky Travel, sent journalists an excited promotional announcement that... With the help of the psychologist, it had calculated the most miserable day of the year. 
The team had apparently worked it out with a complex formula developed by UK-based psychologist Cliff Arnold. It considered facts such as the weather to devise people's lowest point. The formula was meant to analyse when people booked holidays, assuming that people were most likely to buy a ticket to paradise when they were feeling down. Arnold was asked to come up with the best day to book a holiday trip, so he thought of reasons why people might want to take a holiday, and thus the gloomiest day of the year was born. There is generally more sadness in the wintertime, and January is not uncommon at all for overall more sadness amongst folks, among folks. Um, so rather than dial into one specific day, I think the more interesting question is, what is it about the winter that affects our mood? Some fuel stoking the Blue Monday fire could also be the phenomenon that, based on research from Japan, in 2009, the suicide ratio for Mondays for Japanese men was significantly higher than on other days of the week, especially those in the productive age category suggesting the structure of the work week and economic struggles were to blame. However, the winter blues are real. Critics of the concept of a Blue Monday have held that attributing clinical depression to external causes, such as the idea that the number of days since Christmas may adversely affect people influenced by it, by suggesting their condition could be solved, was something as easy as booking a vacation to a sunny beach. What is the real winter blues, more clinically known as seasonal affective disorder or SAD? It's a form of depression that people experience, usually during the autumn and winter months when there is less sunlight. The most difficult months for people with SAD tend to be January and February, but it improves with the arrival of spring. Um, how to combat it? The easiest way to start taking action against SAD is to focus on light exposure. If you can't get natural sunlight, buy a light box. Light therapy involves sitting in front of a light therapy box that emits very bright light for a minimum of 20 minutes per day. Most people see improvements from this method within one or two weeks of beginning treatment. Increased exposure to sunlight can help improve symptoms as well. Those prone to symptoms may want to spend more time outside or arrange a sitting area in your house that is exposed to a window during the day. Antidepressants and talk therapy are effective in treating SAD as well. Taking holistic care of your health can also help. Exercising regularly, eating well, sleeping enough when you can and staying connected with family and friends. Talk to your doctor too, as SAD can be a manageable condition with the right diagnosis and treatment. If you keep yourself active physically, mentally and socially and use a light box, that's going to go a long way. Smart light boxes which can be acted by a Google Home or Amazon Echo device can help you gently fall asleep or wake up slowly, brightening or dimming. Weighted blankets have been beneficial for people who struggle with insomnia and anxiety. The concept of Blue Monday was a relatable idea at best and a travel marketing scheme that probably didn't work. But why stop there? Arnal later devised a formula determining the happiest day of the year, sponsored by an ice cream company, <laughs> even though many find solace in the treat when they are least happy. Mm. So if your feelings okay today on Blue Monday, don't anticipate that the day will hold impending doom. If you're struggling with sad, 
know that help is available to you. But funny, we were talking about an ice cream earlier. Yeah. <laughs> we were indeed, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I wonder yeah. then, do we just, do we now feel low on Blue Monday because we know it's Blue Monday? Yeah, yeah. Mm. That's you know, is there a bit of psychology up. in there? Yeah, totally, yeah. I think, yeah. Yeah. And well, I'd say, you know, basically people's bills start coming in and they're sort of thinking, oh, well, mm. we have another month of winter and then it's Valentine's Is it the credit Day? card statements from Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it comes around this time yeah, of the year um, or um, this a date as well. Uh-huh. There must be something, must yeah. there? Well, I could cheer you up, I think, mm-hmm. because we have Chinese New Year to look forward to on Sunday the 22nd of January. So Chinese New Year is also known as the Lunar New Year or Spring Festival and it is the most important festival in China and a major event in some other East Asian countries. Chinese New Year is the festival that celebrates the beginning of a new year on the traditional Chinese lunar solar calendar. It was traditionally a time to honour deities and ancestors and it has also become a time to feast and visit family members. The date of the Chinese New Year is determined by the Chinese lunar calendar. The date changes every year, but it's always summer in the period from January the 21st to February the 20th. Each Chinese year is associated with an animal sign according to the Chinese zodiac cycle. And 2023 is the year of the rabbit, specifically the water rabbit. The sign of rabbit is a symbol of longevity, peace and prosperity in Chinese culture. So 2023 is predicted to be a year of hope. Now, isn't that good news? Legend states that the Chinese New Year stemmed from an ancient battle against the Nen, which sounds the same as year in Chinese. A terrifying beast that showed up every lunar New Year's Eve to eat people and livestock. To scare away the monster, people displayed red paper, burned bamboo, lit candles and wore red clothes. And these traditions have been continued until the present time. It's also a celebration of the arrival of spring and the beginning of a new year on the Chinese lunar solar calendar. Celebrations of Chinese New Year traditionally last for 16 days, starting from Chinese New Year's Eve to the Lantern Festival. The first seven days are a public holiday from January the 21st to January the 27th in 2023. Regional customs and traditions vary widely, but share the same thing. Seeing out the old year and welcoming in the luck and prosperity of a new year. The main Chinese New Year activities include putting up decorations, offering sacrifices to ancestors, eating reunion dinners with family on New Year's Eve, giving red envelopes and other gifts, firecrackers and fireworks and watching lion and dragon dances. People give their houses a thorough clean before the Spring Festival, which symbolises sweeping away the bad luck of the preceding year and making their homes ready to receive good luck. Red is the main colour for the festival, as red is believed to be an auspicious colour for the Lunar New Year, denoting prosperity and energy, which ward off evil spirits and negativity. Red lanterns hang in streets and poems and New Year pictures are pasted on doors. Honouring the dead is a Chinese New Year's tradition that's kept religiously. Many Chinese people visit ancestors' graves on the day before the Chinese New Year's Day, offer sacrifices to ancestors before the reunion dinner to show that they are letting their ancestors eat first and add an extra glass and place at the dinner table on New Year's Eve. Chinese New Year is a time for families to be together. Chinese New Year 
Eve is the most important time. Whenever, wherever they are, people are expected to be home to celebrate the festival with their families. The Chinese New Year's Eve dinner is called Reunion Dinner. Big families of several generations sit around round tables and enjoy the food and time together. Chinese New Year is a season of red envelopes or red packets. Red envelopes have money in them and are often given to children and retired seniors. The red envelope money is called Yasui Shen, which means suppressing sway, the demon money. Those who receive a red envelope are wished another safe and peaceful year. Other popular Lunar New Year's gifts are alcohol, tea, fruits and candies. From public displays in major cities to millions of private celebrations in China's rural areas, setting off firecrackers and fireworks is an indispensable festive activity. It's a way to scare away the evil and welcome the New Year's arrival. Lion dances and dragon dances are widely seen in China and Chinatown in many Western countries during the Lunar New Year period. They are performed to bring prosperity and good luck for the upcoming year or event. There are more Chinese New Year traditions and customs, such as wearing new clothes, staying up late on Chinese New Year's Eve, watching the Spring Festival Gala. Food is an important part of Chinese New Year, and luckily food is served during the 16-day festival season, especially on the New Year's Eve family reunion dinner. Fish is a must, as it sounds like surplus in Chinese and symbolises abundance. Dumplings shaped like Chinese silver ingots are shared as a sign of the family unit and prosperity. Nianjiu, I do apologise for my um, Chinese pronunciation, which is a glutinous rice cake, is welcome because it symbolises a higher income or position as it sounds like year high. Chinese people traditionally believe that the year's start affects the whole year. So China's Spring Festival is a season of superstitions. It's believed that what something looks like in colour and shape and what its name sounds like gives it auspicious or ill-fated significance. There are many things you cannot do. Don't sweep up on New Year's Day, otherwise you'll sweep all your luck away. Don't eat porridge for breakfast, otherwise you become poor in the upcoming year. And don't wash your clothes or hair on New Year's Day, otherwise you'll wash fortune away. When people meet friends and relatives and colleagues and even strangers during the festival, they usually say Xi Nin Hao, literally meaning New Year goodness. One of the most famous traditional greetings for Chinese New Year is the Cantonese Kung Hai Fat Choi, literally happiness and prosperity or something like that. <laughs> So have a lovely um, Chinese New Year. Sounds very similar to some of our own traditions that we do at Christmas and New Year, um, which we've celebrated. So that seems to me like a good excuse to do it all again. Uh Well, uh, I lived in Belfast for over a decade and people had told me to go to the Chinese supermarket, the Asian supermarket. And the first time I went to it, I must say I didn't know what to do um, because all this stuff that maybe just wasn't as common now then as it is now and I said you know it's going to take me years to get <laughs> to know all this and I still go to it and I would recommend it I find that a lot of the brands that they had are now in Tesco's mm-hmm. uh, you have to look for them but one of the interesting things uh, is when you ask the staff for something, what they say. So I was aware that the restaurants use cheap rice and some re- restaurants use nice rice. 
So I asked the lady, um, you know, what rice should I buy? Because, you know, people are inclined to go for the tilde, which mm -hmm. is big money. And she said, um, well, the restaurants use this. So this is cheap muck. <laughs> <laughs> but the question you should be asking is, what do people eat at home? Mm -hmm. And she pointed me to the rice that... Um, they eat at home and it is now available in Tesco. If I was good, I'd be able to tell you the brand. And the general idea of the Chinese supermarket is you buy a bigger bag than usual and then it probably works out at about half the price of what it, you're paying in the supermarket. And um, so that's just something by the bag. Anyway, we're on 33 minutes and it will stop for our song of the week.
Hi, um, I'm just um, following on from um, Blue Monday. I thought I would take something a wee bit more hopeful as in the start of spring um, because I know it's certainly something that I am really, really looking forward to. So I've picked out an article about um, the spring equinox. So basically when the spring starts. Well, in 2023, the official first day of spring is Monday, March the 20th. This date marks the spring equinox in the Northern Hemisphere. So we'll be looking forward to that. Um, This falls on a Monday and is the astronomical beginning of the spring season uh, in the Northern Hemisphere and the autumn season in the Southern Hemisphere. If you thought the spring equinox only ever occurred on March the 21st, you uh, may be dating yourself. The um, civil calendar date of the equinox continues to shift every year. Um, In the Northern Hemisphere, the spring equinox is called the March equinox or vernal equinox. It occurs when the sun crosses the celestial equator going south to north. It's called a celestial equator because it's an imaginary line in the sky above the Earth's equator. Imagine standing on the equator, the sun would pass directly overhead on its way north. After the spring equinox, the northern hemisphere begins to be tilted more towards the sun, resulting in an increasing number of daylight hours with earlier dawns and later sunsets. In the southern hemisphere, it's the opposite where um, the sun begins to or where the southern hemisphere begins to be tilted away from the sun. Although in most locations the amount of daylight had been increasing every day, every day after the winter solstice, after the spring equinox many places will experience more daylight than darkness in each 24-hour day. The amount of daylight each day will continue to increase until the summer solstice in June during which the longest period of daylight occurs. Here's an interesting fact. Equinoxes are the only two times each year that the sun rises due east and sets due west for all of us on Earth. While the sun passes overhead, the tilt of the Earth is zero relative to the sun, which means that the Earth's axis neither points towards or away from the sun. The word equinox comes from the Latin word for equal night. On the equinox, the length of day and night is nearly equal in all parts of the world. So, does spring begin on March the 1st or on the equinox? Well, the answer is both. The answer depends on your definition of spring. Both dates are accurate. They're just from different perspectives. We'll explain. Astronomically speaking, the first day of spring is marked by the spring equinox, which falls on March 1920 or 21st every year. The equinox happens at the same moment worldwide, although our clock times reflect a different time zone. As mentioned above, this date only signals spring's beginning in the Northern Hemisphere. It announces fall's arrival in the Southern Hemisphere. Meteorologically speaking, the official first day of spring is March the 1st and the last is May the 31st. Weather scientists divide the year into quarters to make it easier to compare seasonal and monthly statistics from one year to the next. The meteorological seasons are based on annual temperature cycles rather than on the position of Earth in relation to the sun, and they more closely follow the Gregorian 
Gregorian calendar, I can nearly say that, Gregorian calendar, using the dates of the astronomical equinoxes and solstices for the seasons would present a statistical problem as these dates can vary slightly each year. Are day and night equal on the equinox? Quite close. In reality, day and night are not exactly equal on the equinox for two reasons. First, daytime begins the moment any part of the sun appears over the horizon and is not finished until the last part of the sun disappears below the horizon. If the sun were to shrink to a star-like point and we lived in a world without air, the spring and fall equinoxes would truly have equal nights. So, we have a few fun facts about it. According to folklore, you can stand a raw egg on its end on the equinox. Is this true? This egg folklore became popular in 1945 following a Life article about the spring practice. The origins of this myth are attributed to stories that the ancient Chinese would create displays of eggs standing on end during the first day of spring. Um, according to John Millis, Assistant Professor of Physics and Astronomy at Anderson University in South Carolina. The ancient Chinese celebrated the first day of spring about six weeks earlier than the equinox, not just the equinox itself. As with most folklore, it's only partly true. You should be able to balance an egg on its end on the equinox, but it's possible to balance an egg on other days too. Folklore or not, this egg trick sounded like fun to us. One spring, a few minutes before the vernal equinox, several alamanic editors tried this trick. For a full workday, 17 out of 24 eggs stood on the end. Three days later, we tried this trick again and found similar results. Perhaps three days after, the equinox was still too near. Perhaps the the equinox has nothing to do with it. Perhaps we just don't like to take ourselves too seriously. Um. There were also some ancient equinox traditions. There's one, the snake of sunlight. Scientific explanation aside, our ancestors were more connected to the sun than we are today. They observed its pathway across the sky. They tracked how the sunrise, sunset and daylight changed using the sun and moon as a clock and calendar. There are many ancient sites that mark the equinoxes and solstices. One of the most famous ancient spring equinox celebrations took place at Chichen Itza in Mexico. The Mayans built a huge pyramid around the year AD 1000. Even today, the way the sun's light falls on it signals the beginning of the seasons. On the spring equinox, it looks like a huge snake is slithering down the steps. Mayans call this day the return of the sun serpent. So I am a couple of nice wee quotes and verses that um, about the spring equinox. One of them is, For glad spring has begun, and to the ardent sun, the earth long time so bleak, turns a frost-bitten cheek. Um, that was an American um, poet called Celia Thaxter. Then there's another one from an unknown poet. Springtime sweet, the whole earth smiles, thy coming to great. Another one, never yet was a springtime, late though lingered the snow, that the sap stirred not at the whisper of the south wind sweet and low. And then there is a famous quote from the late Robin Williams, um, which said, and he said, spring is nature's way of saying, let's party.
So hopefully, um, we're looking forward to that anyway. I know I will be in the lighter nights. <laughs> So, oh, yeah. The period of time that we're going to come into is my favourite time. Oh, absolutely. Spring, yep. <laughs> and then you get a bit of heat. You do. Mm-hmm. And you have the whole summer to look forward to as well. You're thinking, yeah, yeah just. And walks yeah. at night time yeah. and that kind of thing. And there is a lot to be said for it. Um, and I enjoy Facebook, and you get, you know, I'd be on all these sites that are really sort of magazines and can be very annoying, but. A lot of people were asking, what's the best time of the year to visit Ireland? And mm-hmm. May, June seemed to be the one that was coming up mm-hmm. for yeah. longer, mm-hmm. longer, longer days. Yeah. And a bit of heat. And I'll read out something now again from Jimmy Jennings. This time it's Books Memories by Jimmy Jennings. And it's the Junction Cinema. We had our own cinema. Well, you might say a sort of picture house. The driving force behind the great enterprise at the time was myself. Jimmy Jennings, who else? You see, I owned the projector. Oh, excuse me, the Magic Lantern, as it was called then. Very modern, of course. By the way, it had no sound, no screen, just a whitewashed wall down in the shed, or rather the stable wall where my father kept our pony. And we never, he never did object to me and my partner in crime, John Robinson, using the stable for our show. John and I had this great venture year by year. It was. A good job my father didn't ask for rent, for if he had, the great limited company would have gone into liquidation long before its time. Uh, Every night during the dark night period, we played to a full house admission. The expensive seats were one penny, the rest sit where you like, a half penny. And um, we could say a jam jar or a porter bottle. The, the films were usurped, so no uh, sex or violence allowed by order of the management, no need for bouncers <coughs> to keep order, and the tiny tots along with the older boys and girls came along to see Charlie Chaplin, Chaplin uh, Laurel and Hardy, Charlie Chase, Andy Klein, and of course the, all the cowboy favourites. Then there were other funny films, but then every film John and I showed was funny, it had to be. With the setup, we had sometimes the candle went out or the battery ran out on the projector. Oh, sorry, magic lantern broke down. It's a good job we never booked Gone with the Wind, three and a half hours. We sure would never have made it with the equipment we had. Sometimes John Robinson and I laugh at the times we had at the picture house business. Oh, and those lovely children are my magic memories. And hopefully I can read out another one here about his granny. So the book is sort of, is a lot of families mentioned, McGrath family, Hughes family, Devlin's, McKinley's, etc. And then his headline here is my own grandmother. My grandmother was a lady by the name of Mary Margaret Greenaway, who kept what was known as the wee shop in the Junction Row area. And in this wee shop, the neighbours could get tick. In other words, they could get what they needed and then pay at the end of the week when they received their wages. The fun began when some of her customers failed to turn up to pay up on time. I only wish tape recorders had been invented then to record my granny's opinion of them. But it soon passed and then it was business as usual the following week. I sometimes wonder what she would make of all these supermarkets if she was alive today. My granny Greenaway was a large in stature, a woman with a loving heart, and her son John, who lived with her, they always remain special to me and my cousin Tilly. 
as we spent most of our childhood life in their wee home in the junction and my granny's lovely wee shop. Ah, such happy memories. Now over to you. <laughs> Thank you, John. Well, I'm going to talk to you now about, um, I'm going to bring an excerpt from a book. I was at the um, Sroptimus Conference in Belfast in October last year, and one of the guest speakers was Dr. Tara Shine. And Dr. Tara Shine is an environmental scientist with over 20 years' experience working at international level on climate change and sustainable development. She's been an advisor to governments, world leaders, business and international organisations. She's the director of the award-winning social enterprise Change by Degrees, which educates and inspires people at home and at work to live more sustainably. And she's co-founder of Plastic Free Conceal, a community initiative to reduce single-use plastics in her own town. So she says she absolutely refuses to leave the problems currently facing our planet to our children and young people to survive to solve and as a result she's written this book which should help everyone who reads it to take responsibility and make changes now and the book is called how to save your planet one object at a time so the book is divided off into various parts around the house um you know the kitchen utility room bathroom so on and so i'm going to start in the kitchen but i'm not going to start with the first paragraph which is about the kettle because we all know um ways to um, save with our kettle and by boiling only the water that we need. But what do we boil that water for? And that's probably most likely to make a cup of tea. So I'm going to start with the humble tea bag. So whether you like strong builder's tea or prefer a more delicate oolong or Earl Grey tea, one survey showed that 68% of people in the UK drink two or more cups a day. Tea is an essential part of many people's daily life, helping them to wake up, relax and unwind. It's estimated that tea was first used as a medicinal drink in China in 2737 BC. China is the largest producer of tea, followed by India and Kenya, but it's Ireland that drinks the most tea per capita, followed by the UK. Tea bags are typically made from paper and sealed with polypropylene, a plastic, a fact that explains why gardeners reported very slow decomposition of tea bags in their compost heaps. A 2010 witch gardening study in the UK revealed tea bags from top manufacturers were only 70 to 80% biodegradable. In some tea bags, plastic is contained in the mesh of the bag itself as well as in the glue that holds it together. Given the increase in public awareness about plastic, a number of tea producers have set targets for removing the plastic from their tea bags. The environmental footprint of a tea bag isn't just down to the plastic, it's also the resource that goes into growing, processing and transporting tea. A 2012 study revealed that over 300 litres of water are required to grow enough tea for 25 tea bags, and when grown in water scarce areas, tea places a stress on groundwater supplies. A 2017 study published in the Oxford Research Encyclopedias stated that the intensive monoculture production of tea has a high impact on the environment. It typically requires the use of pesticides and inorganic fertilisers that create environmental hazards, cause water pollution and threaten biodiversity. The repeated application of fertilisers and herbicides also contributes to soil degradation and the acquisition of new land for tea growing contributes to deforestation and habitat loss. The processing, drying and fermenting and transport of tea relies on the burning of fossil fuels which contributes to climate change. So a cup of tea with zero impact is not possible. 
but it is possible to make choices that are better for you and the environment. So what can you do? You can use loose tea leaves and make a pot of tea. Many people say this makes the best cup of tea because brewing tea in its loose leaf form allows the hot water to infuse the whole leaf, producing the freshest, fullest flavour possible. Buy and use a metal tea infuser if you just want to make one cup of tea at a time. Buy plastic-free tea bags in minimal packaging. Ideally, choose certified compostable tea bags and put them with your food waste in, a brown, in the brown bin. Don't expect your home composter to be able to cope with tea bags. They break down more slowly than food waste. And avoid overpackaging and individually wrapped tea bags. You could look out for Rainforest Alliance or Fairtrade certified tea to ensure that the tea has been produced to high environmental standards, meaning less impact on the environment. You could uphold the standards by choosing Fairtrade or Ethical Tea Partnership certified tea and such products provide better working conditions and pay for people working all along the supply chain from the growers and pickers to the factory workers. Or you could choose a certified organic tea that is grown and produced without synthetic fertilisers, pesticides or herbicides so that it is better for biodiversity and protects the health of the growers and pickers. So that's quite a lot of options and I don't imagine that um, the packaging around the tea bags that we buy would explain all of that to us. So the first plastic tea bag has been produced by a company called Tea Pigs and you may have heard of Tea Pigs because I think they are quite widely available. Yeah, and they're, it's a bit like a net curtain, the, the covering. Yes, they say that um, their quest for flavour and quality has led them to care about the environmental footprint of their tea and the lives and well-being of the farmers that grow it. I think what you're maybe talking about is the temple. I'm going to tell you about the temple. So from the start, the company put an emphasis on the whole leaf tea, not just a standard tea bag. Instead, they used pyramid-shaped tea bags that they call tea temples to hold their tea. These temples are made from cornstarch, which is biodegradable, as is the string, and the label is made from paper printed with vegetable oils. The temples are heat-sealed, so there's no plastic glue. The company is transparent about what biodegradable means for their tea and don't recommend putting them in your household compost as they take too long to break down, as we've already um, heard. But they can go in your food waste um, for industrial composting. Packaging-wise, their cardboard cartons are made from FSC-certified cardboard, which is recyclable, and the clear inner bags are made of a material called NatureFlex. It might look like a plastic bag, but this cellulose product is compostable in a home or industrial composter. The company also makes loose tea and aluminium cans, which can be recycled or repurposed. And best of all, Tea Pigs provides clear, honest information to their customers about their impact on the environment and how they work with their tea growing communities. In 2018, Tea, Pag, tea, P- tea Pigs were the first tea brand to be awarded the Plastic Free Trust Mark, certifying that the product and the packaging are plastic free. This certification is awarded by a Plastic Planet, a not-for-profit organisation based in London. So there's a few things to think about on your tea bag and the tea that you drink. And, uh, you know, maybe while you're waiting for the kettle to boil for the next time, you can have a wee read at the packet and see just how environmentally friendly whatever your brand is. I personally use tea leaves and an enamel teapot, and I think you get a much better taste of it. But, uh, well... You will remember uh, that the, the council bins went on strike oh, it's probably six months ago and I 
where I live, there's a shed. Uh, it's not in my garden, um, and I'll not name the business because <laughs> I'll completely incriminate myself. But the business behind me, very profitable business, might I add. Uh, there's a shed. It's obviously some sort of electronic substation or something. And I, to because the the brown bin was getting a bit disgusting, I started firing all my food on top of this shed. John's admitting a bit of flight tipping. <laughs> Exactly. I I was thinking today, I put rough at least half a wheelie bin of food on that uh, roof mm-hmm. per month. Probably it's absolutely revolting. <laughs> and then I had been away for Christmas, and it's the usual thing. You know, you come back and there's food in the fridge that is <laughs> needs to go out. And I have sort of got into a routine of putting food on this roof first thing in the morning and then you have your cup of coffee or cup of tea and all the birds are actually serenade me in the morning when I go out to the garden (laughs) and the neighbours are cursing (laughs) (laughs) probably and then um, you go in and have your cup of tea and by that stage there's maybe 20 or 30 birds on the roof of this shed Um, Now I have to say there are always downsides to these things that for example when John throws the food onto the roof it is probably 10 foot away from my garden and I don't always hit the roof. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes the offending meat pie from the butchers or whatever oh it is uh, bounces off the roof <laughs> and goes oh on. Um, so, and uh, also, I mean, there's an apple tree where I, you know, as you come into the housing development and nobody eats the apples and the apples block the drains up. So I was thinking next year, if I'm still there, I will lift the apples and (laughs) repurpose them. (laughs) This roof will be sagging under the weight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, that's it. Uh, But, I mean, I have to say, you couldn't argue today and yesterday, you couldn't argue with the bird. You know, Mm -hmm. the food was definitely going. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I do wonder how long it's going to be before (laughs) the company uh, says that. Uh, you know, please stop. <laughs> yeah, you're only feeding the birds. I'm only feeding the birds. Mm-hmm. Now we're up to. Have you anything? I have nothing else. Right. We're on our f- hour. We've done our fifty-nine minutes, and I, as your sound recorder, I will re- apologise for the some of the quality of the sound at the beginning of the program, and possibly during the song of the week. I do think some of our. CDs and possibly the equipment, possibly the presenter, and they may need (laughs) re place. But we're going to leave you with uh, oh dear, we've got a funny title of a song, and it's called Floating Away in the Bathtub (laughs) from Top Loader. Uh, So we're going to play it. Uh, So I'll say goodbye from me, John Harkness. Goodbye from me, Belinda Dale. And goodbye from me, Ruth Galway. All the best, everybody. This may sound strange to you It feels so nice when you rub, rub Open my hands to the moon Splishing and splashing and wishing and rushing It's more fun in here than the zoo Slippery salamanders on my tail I'm the dog that ran off with a spoon 
how they jumped over the moon.